Welcome back to For Folk's Sake. My name is Paige, and this week I am so pleased to have Atia Faroz on the podcast. Atia is the founder and CEO of AgCan Consultancy, and she's also an instructor at the Academy of Applied Pharmaceutical Sciences. You will quickly learn from our conversation that Atia is all about science, optimization, and the education of the Canacurious. I found Atia on Reddit, and after seeing her wealth of knowledge and her willingness to spread that knowledge, I knew I had to talk to her. Atia assists clients all over the world with their commercial cannabis operations, one of them being a 1 million square foot greenhouse. Guys, I did the math on that. That's almost 17 and a half football fields. For those that aren't familiar, medicinal and recreational cannabis is grown in facilities starting as a small plant in what's called a vegetative state, which is then followed by a flowering stage that produces the product people most often think of when hearing the word cannabis. After this product has been harvested, dried, trimmed, and quality assured, it's ready to be sold to the consumer or can be transformed into another product such as edibles or extractions. I couldn't be more excited for this episode. We got to nerd out over science together, which is always super fun. You'll notice we talk about something called GFP, which is just green fluorescent protein. Does exactly what it says it does. Um, Turns things green glowing green. Google it. It's so cool. I have been anticipating this episode for a while and I'm so happy and appreciative of Atia and her time. So let me stop rambling. Here it is, everybody. Episode 20 with Atia Feroz. So I wanted to start because I am getting a bachelor's in biology right now. And I saw that you have a bachelor's in biology as well. Yeah. So I completed my bachelor's and my master's actually at Western University, which is located in London, Ontario. Um, It's not actually known as a school that I would say is really big for agriculture. But luckily at my master's, I was able to do a joint program with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, which is the branch of the Canadian government that deals with most of the agriculture. Oh, cool. And what's your um, master's in? My master's is in genetic engineering and plant biotechnology. So I had a really cool project, which I'm going to unfortunately bore you with the details on right now. Um, But but I did cell penetrating peptide transfection, uh, which is a very complicated way of saying short chain peptides that have a very special ability of being able to penetrate into cells. And so we actually take these from viruses like HIV and other viruses, and we take the fact that they're so good at infecting things and use that property. So as part of my master's, I was trying that out in a couple different plant systems. So I got a really good level of experience with tissue culture and a variety of genetic engineering techniques. Oh, cool. What was your experimental process like for that? I had to grow, uh, obviously, my explants and stuff first. So I did a lot of soybean and Arabidopsis plants, and then I would take out from them what I wanted to manipulate. That's where a lot of the tissue culture background came in because I would take something like a cotyledon from a soybean and turn it into a somatic embryo, which allows us a little bit better penetration of the molecules we were testing. And also as part of that, I had to work with a lab to synthesize a protein from HIV for me, well, a peptide really. Um, They doubled it up to what is called TAT2. So it's that peptide basically twice over. And I use that to attach molecular cargo and try to penetrate the cells. Okay. What was the like overall... um goal of the cell permeization? So the really overall goal was that as of when I was doing my master's, there was really only a few techniques you could use like particle bombardment, agrobacterium mediated transformation, which were all really good techniques. But we're always looking for something that's a little bit easier and looking for new ways to get cargo into cells. So my project was a really small project, just looking at whether or not this technique worked, whether or not it could be optimized, what factors we could manipulate. But the long-term goal for the use of this technology is for things like uh, molecular farming. So the ability to produce pharmaceuticals or drugs inside of a plant system, as opposed to using a yeast bioreactor, which is one of the more common ways to scale up a medication. Did you have good outcomes? I did not have great outcomes because unfortunately the work that I was doing, I think a big limitation of it was that I was using a animal virus, basically, or a mammal virus into plants. So I had a lot of really good you know, expertise in my tissue culture area that went really well and was really helpful. But for the actual functionality of that particular protein inside of the plants, not so great. If I were to redo this project again, I would definitely look at looking uh, more so at plant viruses, ones that are a little bit more attuned to that environment already and have the same penetrating abilities as uh, HIV would, for example, in animal cells. 
What does the genetic um, makeup really, what's the big difference, would you say, between like a mammal cell and a plant cell? So genetic makeup is actually not that different in the sense that we still obviously have the same base bases for what you're going to be using for your amino acids, same basis for what you're going to be using um, for the creation of DNA. The bigger thing is like structure. So soybean somatic embryos, for example, which is what I was trying my project on, these peptides or tattoo in this case have to penetrate the cell wall as well. When I did the experiment in Arabidopsis protoclasts, which are plant cells that have had the cell wall removed, there was a lot better uptake. So uh, the fact that animal cells don't have a cell wall and more similar to protoplasts makes sense why we would see better uptake in that system. So again, it's a possibility to run this project entirely on protoplasts alone, but it's not really that scalable. If I were to create a plant and really want to use that, for example, uh, to grow a drug, maybe I make a tobacco plant or another plant that's very bushy, has a lot of biomass. What I would want is to basically infect or to transiently express a gene inside of that plant material and then have it grow as it continues to proliferate and make more cells to create more and more of that product over and over again. That makes sense. I read a little bit of your um, thesis paper and I saw that you used uh, GFP. Were you just yep. using that to like track the activity or to yes, like GFP determine was, success? success? Yeah, GFP was kind of the first and I'm surprised you read that. So kudos to you. I don't even <laughs> think my parents have. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't think I haven't read it since I published it. Like since I finished, I can't go back and read it. It's too I was long hooked. <laughs> I was totally hooked. I, I'm reading Into the Wild right now. And nice. I was way more hooked on your paper than I was. Oh, well, that's great. Well, I did spend a lot of time on those photos. So definitely check those out. That was like midnights in the confocal laser scanning microscope lab. Um, oh, but yeah, cool. we, use, we use GFP. And a lot of the time when you do genetic transformation, you'll always do the first trials with uh, GFP or something else that's fluorescent so that you can do proof of concept or the very basics. Um, they're also typically a lot smaller molecules uh, and things that you already have plasmids readily available for. If you want to do something like a drug or something else, you'll have to make your own custom plasmid, which isn't that hard, to be honest. A lot of labs will do it for you, um, but it is something that's not really a tried and true, whereas GFP is pretty simple to toss into a plasmid or get an existing one, attach it to what you want to, um, and, and force it into the product. Oh, so cool. I love that. I always, I don't know what it is. I think it's just because GFP looks the coolest to me that whenever I think of an experiment, I'm like, well, how am I going to integrate like GFP? It's like, you don't have to use GFP. You just <laughs> want to use GFP. Um, I had thought it would be really cool to make like fluorescent cannabis plants that, but I mean, yeah, and <laughs> I think that's something that could actually do really well, but unfortunately genetic modification in cannabis is not a very big thing, or I think even allowed in Canada right now. Oh, I was going to say, what do you think is the biggest like difference between the Canadian cannabis market and the American cannabis market that you've seen from your position? I think the biggest thing by far is the level of regulation and oversight. Canada is already known in general for regular drugs and for food as being a really high standard, and they've moved that into cannabis. So the biggest thing that I've noticed in the various regulated markets that I've worked with or had clients in, um, like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, California, stuff like that, um, the level of regulation is a lot lower. So the standards to be met are a lot lower. And it makes me a little bit worried, to be honest, for some U.S. consumers that uh, there's not a lot of product safety testing for edibles. So we still run edibles through food safety testing here in Canada, but in California, I don't believe that's a requirement as of right now. Okay. So that was my next question, because I know that you teach at the Academy of Applied Pharmaceutical Sciences, correct? Yes. Is that like your part-time gig? <laughs> yes, I have my full-time gig, uh, which is obviously I run my own cannabis consulting company. Uh, and that's a lot of operational-based consulting as well as quality assurance consulting. So GMP, EU GMP, and just kind of helping production get from the best practices from cultivation all the way to packaging. So in my infinite free time, um, I also teach at the Academy of Applied Pharmaceutical Sciences. Um, and that's something that I've been doing for, I think, about two years now. And I absolutely love it. I was going to say, before we get started, I want you to go through your background. I listened to you on another podcast and you rattled off that background. I was like, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, after I graduated from my master's in genetic engineering, I actually worked in food for about two years at, well, it's now Lactalis Canada. It was Parmalat when I worked there, but it's the largest dairy company in Canada. And I got a lot of really good experience there in quality assurance, regulatory 
product development and recipe development. And I'm a huge foodie and I love free cheese. So it was a really fantastic job. Um, after that, I did notice that cannabis was becoming legal in Canada. And because of my background in plant science, I thought there might be a possibility that I could find something in that field that would be a little bit closer to what I did in school. And luckily enough, there was a job fair in London and there was a company called Egg Medica Bioscience, which was hiring in Chatham. And they were hiring for a tissue culture lab manager. Wow. So it worked out really well. Yeah, so it worked out really well. Uh, I was like, okay, I mean, to be honest, a lot of people who do masters in science, you don't really always get to use those skills, unfortunately, when you go out <laughs> yeah. into the working world. And I loved what I did. I loved being in the lab. I love running experiments. So I decided to take the position there. I worked there for about a year. And then I just was looking for something a little bit different. I wanted to branch more into operations. And I became the head of operations and business development at a 1 million square foot cannabis greenhouse in Leamington, Ontario. That is crazy. 1 million square feet. Yes, it's large. (laughs) How do you even begin to implement systems into a center that's that big? Well, basically each of our flowering zones is 100,000 square feet. So it's about 36,000 plants per harvest. So it is a lot larger scale than most people would deal with. My previous company had been, I think about 2000 plants per harvest. So it was a big leap. And that was why I took it because I thought that having the experience from an indoor facility to a greenhouse facility would help kind of cover that scope for me and also the scale. Um, When you're doing something that large, it's really about finding processes that are repeatable at a large scale and understanding which processes may not be the best for you because of the size. And that's a generally big problem in cannabis. We have a lot of legacy market growers or people that run smaller operations and they become in charge of quite large operations. And there are just certain things that even if it's best practice for the plant is not scalable. So that's actually a lot of my business. I work with a lot of people that have either a small grow operation and they're going up to the next size or they're a legacy market grower and they're starting to go into commercial practice. And I help them to transfer some of those practices from legacy over or from smaller facilities over and just kind of keeping that efficiency and consistency at a larger scale. So with your consultancy business, what are all the departments that you help them set up when you are like helping the legacy grower or someone who's trying to scale? What are all the areas that you cover? Basically anything that touches the plant is my kind of fast way of going over it. So um, anything for cultivation, so best practices for cultivation. I'm a really big person when it comes to post-harvest processing, because I genuinely feel that you can cultivate a really good plant for the 10 to 12 weeks, and then you can destroy it in a few days if you don't do your drying and your trimming correctly. So I spend a lot of time there. There's also quite a bit of science around that area, and it's still a new and developing area where we don't really have 100% best practices. So I I really enjoy that because I run kind of small trials with my clients to find what works best for them. I also help with packaging as well, coming from a consumer packaged good, coming from dairy. Those are all things that I'm super used to. I know how to do all of that stuff already at scale. I know how to build packaging lines and get things together. So I usually work with the client to find their ideal solution there. And quality assurance and regulatory come hand in hand with that because I genuinely feel that If you're doing a lot of operational changes, if you don't have a good grasp of the regulations, if you don't have a good grasp of the quality standard they want to meet, you can do a lot more harm than good. So I also help establishing their quality assurance department, all of their standard operating procedures and documentation in that area. That sounds like so much data and documentation to manage. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on the computer, a lot of time on the computer. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm either right there with the plants or I'm on the computer or in a lab. It's not like, it's not uncommon for you to see me in the grow room on the laptop, like on the floor, sitting down, like doing something while I'm like watching them do an activity or gathering data. I do a lot of, I think the biggest thing for cannabis and one of the biggest things I bring is just like understanding commercial manufacturing and bringing that over. So um, people will always say, well, it's a plant and it's a plant and that's fair, Um, but there needs to be repeatability to this. This is a process that you're doing hundreds of times a year. So how long does it take to defoliate a plant? How long does it take to do this in this room? How long does it take to do that? I pull a lot of that data, work with the workers to find a number that makes sense. And we use that for building out their operations plans, scaling, modeling, and their labor plan for the year. Wow. <laughs> that is so much. I, I have so many questions about your time management, but we'll save those. <laughs> what do you think after helping people with their... Um, with their own businesses, what do you think is the biggest mistake that people like commonly make? I think the biggest mistake that definitely cannabis producers make is sort of diving in without having enough information handy on how this is going to happen at the worker level. So we have a lot of people that, you know, if you were to just ask somebody like an investor, say, okay, what rooms do you need in this cannabis facility? They'll tell you they need a grow room. They'll tell you they need a dry room. 
a vault, a packaging room. Great. And then you'll say, where are the staff going to change? Where is the cleaning going to happen? Where are you? And then, so they just miss out on those little things because if you haven't done it yourself, I can build a facility. I can plan a facility from scratch very easily because I've been in enough of them and I've worked in enough of them that I know what you need and what you don't need. I know how much space you need for this, where you should put this and what makes the most sense. But if you're planning a facility, you don't have a consultant on hand. A lot of my work is gutting facilities and redoing their floor plans. Like I've had to go into facilities and be like, you basically have to shut this down and rip all the walls out and start again. Like it's actually not functional. Um, so that's one of the biggest things that I really recommend. Um, if you really want to do a lot of things on your own, there's definitely pieces to this puzzle that I feel confident people can give a crack at and do okay with. But facility planning is one of the biggest problems that I deal with as a consultant in cannabis. And I think that would be true for a lot of cannabis consultants. That would make sense that they would only focus on the process because probably getting into the industry, the first thing you think of is like, well, how am I going to get from like seed to sale? But you don't think about the little things. That makes a lot of sense. I thought you were going to say they like didn't understand the science or the um, processes of like growing the plant, like more of in the cultivation stage. Oh yeah, no, they don't understand a lot of that either. But um, uh, I mean, the science is an area with like cannabis, it's super new, right? So there's very rarely a client that I go to that has like a scientist on staff. That's like a plant scientist. That's part of what I bring as well is like, I do what's best for the plants from plant science perspective while ensuring that there's consistency and a good amount of yield. Um, but I'd say that like for cultivation, for the most part, a lot of people do have growers. It's one of those things that they'll think of when they're looking at getting their investors or starting up they'll get a grower at least to sort of guide that process. Now, a lot of the growers, again, will come from legacy market and they may or may not have experience at scale. So that can be a little bit tricky. Um, but for the most part, I'd say that the facility planning is one of the things that you can't fix after you've made a mistake or it's going to be very costly to fix. Growing is something that you, there's a lot of help out there. Even if you're just buying from a company that sells you your lights or the substrate that you grow in, almost all of the larger companies have a plant expert that will come to your facility and will tell you how to grow. So if you don't have a grower on staff, it's fixable and it's not that big of a deal. If the facility itself, if you forgot to put in like dripper lines, if you forgot to put in enough fertilizer concentrate tanks, that kind of stuff is way harder to fix than hiring somebody to help you grow. Right. That makes sense. Do you, um, when you're with your clients, you start them with um, seeds or do you do clones, which for listeners are like baby plants? I prefer, that come from a mother plant. Yes, I prefer clones. Um, the reason being that seeds requires phenotyping. And phenotyping, if not done correctly, is a very big mess. Um, the correct way to phenotype would be if you were to buy 20 seeds from a seed supplier, you have to understand that every single one of those seeds actually possesses a unique genetic. There is no way to be sure that all 20 seeds will have the same cannabinoid or terpene profile. So the correct way to do this would be to plant each seed grow it into a sizable enough plant to take cuttings off of it, run those cuttings in a separate room to full flower, grab the information that you want. It can be a variety of things. It can be plant height. It can be pest resistance. Definitely things like the biomass yield or the grams per plant that it yields and potency are very big, of course, in cannabis right now. So checking those results and then going back to that original mother plant and then deciding out of the 20, which of the ones you want to move forward with killing off the ones that did not do well or that you don't want to proceed with, and then using those ones that remain as the mothers for the next batch and cloning off of them again to create a larger batch to create more mothers. So that's the correct way to do it. The problem is a lot of people don't know how to do that. The labeling is also something to be very careful about. If you mislabel one plant, if you lose one label on one plant, you could mess up your whole trial. Um, and that's happened, unfortunately. I've worked at places where they've, they've made mistakes in the pheno. And then we have batches in flower that are not the same cultivar or they're not the same plant. And that is a big problem. So if you do the phenotyping correctly, I love a good pheno hunt. Don't get me wrong. It's a lot of fun. I love taking that data. I mean, I'm obviously obsessed with data if you can't tell already. Yeah, um, seriously. So, um, so I love doing that. I, I do pheno hunts with my clients a lot and make sure they're organized correctly and make sure this goes the way it's supposed to. But if a client is starting out for the first time and they want to get to full-scale production very quickly, you can only do that with clones. You contact a nursery. I have quite a few in my network. They would provide me with clones that have already been phenotyped. They already have a certificate of analysis for the dried flower. And we can be pretty sure that that is what these clones are going to produce. That is so interesting. Can you give us a rundown of what a pheno hunt is? 
Yeah, so a pheno hunt, the, the term is a short form for phenotype hunt. Uh, phenotype is generally just speaking the physical characteristics that are displayed by a certain genotype, which is a genetics. So for example, each of us, you and, you and me both have very specific phenotypes that are very specific to the genotype. So the genes are the underlying thing that you can't see and the phenotype is a thing that you can. So a phenotype for a plant is any sort of physical characteristic that it displays. And each of those seeds can individually have its own phenotype because it has an individual genotype. Super interesting. You just go around to different um, like growers or different places and see their plants. And then that's how you take the pheno or how do you make the decision of which phenotype that you're going to take back for your clients or yourself or your company? So the nurseries that have clones will typically have done the pheno hunt already. And so the nurseries would have started from clones already, the ones that I'm buying from. So I'd contact a nursery, you know, nursery ABC and say, hey, my client is looking for a cultivar that is this much THC, has this kind of properties, has this kind of, you know, look to it. And they'll say, okay, here are the four that we have. They'll send photos of the full-size plant. They'll send information on growing and exactly how long it took to go flowering, the conditions that it was flowered in. And they'll also send me a certificate of the dried flower saying that this was the potency terpenes and information. Yeah. If you've never heard of it before, it's like a very awesome service, like nurseries. There's a ton in the States and Canada. Um, they're an amazing service. They allow you to get to production so much faster. If you turn on your facility, we're ready to go lights on and you got clones from a nursery, you could have a flowering batch within 10 to 12 weeks. Whereas if you did it yourself and did an internal pheno hunt using seeds, you're looking at three to four months minimum. Yeah. So the turnaround time is much shorter by taking out like the guessing work and like having someone else do it. Yes, a hundred percent. And it's also just that reliability. The clones are typically really clean. If they come from a really well-known nursery, I do supplier audits of nurseries. So before my clients receive any genetics, I go in person, I check to make sure that cleanliness is up to my standard. They have good batch records and they have a good pest control program to make sure that nothing is brought in. The most dangerous thing that happened in early cannabis in Canada was that there weren't really a lot of nurseries and people were getting clones from wherever they could. And they were bringing in pests and disease from all over Canada into different facilities. What's the biggest press pest problem in Canada? Root aphids are a really big deal. Um, a, a kind of like unfortunate thing about cannabis is because it hasn't been commercially cultivated. There's not really a ton of things that have been specially designed for cannabis. So most of the pesticides that we were able to use in controls, they're only allowed, you know, because they're used in other crops. They were used in cucumber or tomato actually more often. And they're, they're kind of reapplied to cannabis. There weren't a lot of people specifically making things that would work well in cannabis. In addition, Health Canada, which is the governmental authority that controls cannabis in Canada, has a very, very strict protocol when it comes to the kind of pesticides you can use. So unfortunately, most other crops in Canada can use things that are a lot more hardy than we can use in cannabis production, which puts us at a really big disadvantage when we haven't spent decades breeding crops that are specifically resistant to pests. Right now we look at what's the highest potency. That's the one that I want. There isn't too much factoring in on disease and pest resistance, unfortunately, in cultivar selection. Right. And with pesticides, you have to be kind of careful because since it's a product that's going to be ingested, you don't want any of that like chemical compounds on the product either. Yeah. So in Canada, at the end of your testing for, for, for dried cannabis, you will have to go through a Health Canada screen. I believe it's 40 pesticide compounds. If your product shows up with any of that, you cannot sell it in Canada. Once it's gone through that and it's gone through an extraction process, for example, on the way to edibles, I believe the pesticide screen is run again after it's extracted. So if by any chance there were trace amounts of it that then got concentrated during the extraction process, you once again have a product you cannot sell in Canada. So we're pretty strict about stuff, but it makes sure that if you're in Canada and you're buying product from a licensed producer, it's safe. Do you uh, know if America has the, a similar regulatory process? It does, but it's different state by state and every state has their own standards. So we've talked a lot with people about the fact that everybody wants the U.S. to federally legalize. But from a regulator perspective, as somebody who worked in regulatory, that would be such a nightmare to sew all of the different states frameworks together. We'll either have to wipe the whole slate clean and say, OK, here's the new regulation. You guys have a year to get in place and this is what it's going to be. Or you're going to have to say each of the states will have their own legislation and then you guys have to kind of weave together how we're going to pass them. So if Colorado, for example, says, OK, we do testing on these pesticides. These are the limits for microbial content. These are the heavy metals. What if California's is different? Can they sell to each other? So little things like that have to be thought about when we talk about uh, expanding it across the entire country. That makes sense. Did Canada federally legalize before it had any of its provinces legalized? 
Yes. So Canada federally okay. legalized in 2018. No individual province has their own framework except for retail. Retail is a little bit different. So at the very beginning, Ontario went with a very online model, which we still have. It's called the Ontario Cannabis Store, the OCS. You could buy product online and they were like, I think under a dozen brick and mortar stores that were approved. They kind of realized down the line that that wasn't the best route. And now we have a lot more brick and mortar stores with the online store. Alberta went a very different route and said, hey, for retail, we're going to go with brick and mortar as like the main push. So I think within the first year of legalization, they had hundreds of stores already and can't and Ontario only had 12. Um, so everyone kind of had a bit of difference on retail, but for the actual licensing, the ability to grow cannabis, the ability to get licenses to process it, stuff like that, that's all federally regulated. And I think another reason why people uh, don't maybe think sometimes why Canada got their, their stuff together basically so quickly, we've had other types of cannabis legislation in Canada for a long time. We've allowed people medically to grow for a long time. So there wasn't this huge, you know, oh, we've never had it. Now, all of a sudden we have this like fully rolled out federal program. We had already done quite a few pilot trials on different systems and setups. So it wasn't that big of a leap for us to go from the previous systems to the new one. That makes sense. I One of my questions with country crossovers is a lot of your clients are in Europe, correct? Yes, most of my clients are in Europe. So how does that cross over? Do you do your cloning and phenotyping in the country of origin? Or are you able to take a product from Canada, let's say like clones or whatever, and take it with you to Europe? I do both, actually. So uh, one of my clients right now is just started a phenotyping program. So we've just popped a bunch of seeds, which is the expression for germinating them and getting them going. They're going to be running that internally. So we expect in three to four months, we will have the data that we need to make a concrete decision on which phenotypes they will keep and what they will grow. In the meantime, though, they needed plants. So we've actually been shipping in clones from Canada into Europe, which is a bit difficult because there are different types of legislation in both of those countries. So you're dealing with a lot of governmental framework. I had to deal with getting um, a light export permit from Health Canada for the clone company which they obviously did the bulk of the work with. I'm not going to take credit for that. That is not fun. <laughs> then they also had to go to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which is the agency that is responsible for import and export of plants to get a phytosanitary certificate. I had to deal with the European side of things to figure out their import permits and their laws. And the best part of this was that the particular strain that we selected is 0.6% THC. And it was a high CBD cultivar, about 12 to 14% CBD. In Canada, anything over 0.3% THC is cannabis. Anything below 0.3% is hemp. In the country that we exported to, anything below 1% is hemp. Anything above 1% is cannabis. It left Canada as cannabis. It arrived as hemp. So that's a lot of fun dealing with all the regulatory bodies to try to get them on the same page about that. Oh my gosh, that sounds like a complete nightmare. That's kind of crazy that so many countries or states um, don't have a similar crosswork and it wouldn't just be like, a global understanding of like, this is the cutoff for hemp. This is the cutoff for cannabis. Yeah. And I, after this whole shipping fiasco, which might've been one of the most stressful weeks of my life, because it's not like ship, I've shipped a lot of stuff for dairy. It's not like that. It will die. They did die. Some did die. We've had shipments that did not make it across and they die. And you've spent weeks getting these clones ready and you know prepped and shipped. And then they die because they got held at the border for an extra day or two. Yeah, it's very sad. It breaks my heart, honestly. Um, and so that's like a bit of a different scenario altogether. And that made me really think, why is there not a single THC limit across the world? And then, you know, Thailand just recently legalized. And they're at 0.2% THC, I believe. So they're even lower. And I noticed that now that I've been kind of digging into it, every country has just sort of picked whatever they wanted. And that was sort of what they decided. So you could very well be moving a plant out of Canada that you consider to be hemp, and it might cross into a country where they're considered to be cannabis and it's legal. Is there any type of organization that does like an overview of cannabis like worldwide? No, unfortunately, that doesn't exist as of right now. And the other big thing is that depending on the country that you're in and the continent that you're in, they have completely different quality standards. So uh, EU GMP, which is European Good Manufacturing Practices, is something that a lot of European countries want, which means if they buy products from North America, uh, Canada, obviously, uh, they would like to have it brought into an EU GMP standard. Canadians do not have to grow and produce to EU GMP standards. So there's very few production facilities that have decided to go to that extra level because it, is, it can be quite costly if you didn't build your facility the first time to that standard to make that change so they can sell products specifically into Europe. So you have to really know 
what you want to do with your facility and who you want to sell to. That's one of the first things I talk about with my clients. If they're a new build, I ask them, what quality standard do you want to obtain? And who are the countries that you're targeting? Because the second they tell me certain countries, I say, okay, we need to be EU GMP compliant, entirely different floor plan, entirely different situation. It has to be done like this. Uh, if they tell me they just want to be GACP, which is good agricultural practices, bit of a lower standard. That's what most companies in Canada would be certified to. Um, that's fine. Then we build to a different level. So it's really important to know what the customer's end goal is and what markets they want to get into. Because as of right now, there is no, unfortunately, oh, just meet this one standard. You can sell globally. It's specific to the country. Your consulting business sounds so encompassing of it all. Do you feel like you could, I mean, I saw on your website that you said that you can get like a startup, like I got everything. What does that um, education or onboarding process look like for the workers that come on? Workers into the facilities that I hire for? Yes. So depending on the country, right? A lot of that is dependent on, is there any staff that have any experience? If it's people in Canada and I have clients here, I do recommend a lot of my students that came out of AAPS because they've done a cannabis certificate program for four to six months. Many of them have worked as bud tenders or worked in production facilities. So the caliber of employees that I hire for clients in Canada, they normally have a good amount of experience and they're quite high end. When I'm dealing with countries in Europe where they've never had anybody like have a production facility, I'm really looking for very basic qualities and transferable skills. So uh, looking for people that have experience doing repetitive tasks, they're going to be cloning every day or defoliating every day. That's going to be something I need to look for. People with a good work ethic, of course, is great across any position. It's much harder for me to hire like higher end positions, like a quality assurance manager in a country where nobody's ever managed quality assurance in cannabis is a little bit more difficult. In those cases, I actually just try to find somebody that has a good basic understanding. And I do a lot of one-on-one training and train them myself because it's not a skill set we can get anywhere else. If I put up a post saying only apply if you have cannabis quality assurance experience, there will be zero applicants in that entire country, basically. So I'll have to look at just finding transferable skills. For me, anybody who is really willing to learn is the most important skill set. Oh, absolutely. I think people really underestimate the power of keeping your mind open to like always learning things or continuing your education or like information intake. For sure. And I'm like definitely somebody I would say is like a lifelong learner. Just this year alone, I've already finished two new certificates. I'm getting another two this year. So I, I'm always spending time like reading and sucking up information. I'm so fascinated by everything. Every time I go somewhere and someone else is doing something that I haven't done before, I haven't seen before. I want to learn more about it. And I think that's also why it was so easy for me to transition from food into cannabis. I didn't come in saying, you know, I've worked in an established industry already. I know everything. I came in saying, okay, who knows how to do this? Who's done this before? Like, let's work together. Let's figure this out. And when anybody came in from another licensed producer that had experience, I was like their shadow. I would like follow them around. I'd want to learn more. And I think that's one of the benefits of consulting and why I, I decided to consult was I felt very stagnated in my role. You know, I was running this facility, but I had been doing it for a while. And I felt that there wasn't really much more that I could learn. And consulting is learning every day, every day that I have to deal with a new type of regulatory framework. I'm in a new country. Every time I go to a client's facility and we have to find a workaround for something because they didn't quite build it the right way. All of those are things that allow me to learn and develop. And it keeps things interesting too. Yes. I'm not a person that's a big fan of the same day today. No, you're like, I can't do, it's no groundhog days here, please. Absolutely not. No. So I wanted to ask you about your um, teaching work or instruction work at um, the Academy of Applied Pharmaceutical Sciences. I saw that you kind of, not, maybe not specialize is the best word, but you're very involved with edible processing. Yep. So two of the courses that I teach for them in the cannabis program, I do a lot of the cannabis safety courses as well. So just kind of quality assurance stuff, which is really important for edibles manufacturers. But I also do a little bit of the edibles product development and processing. And those are two of my favorite courses to teach because I think edibles are just such a huge part of the market. I'm really big into edibles. You've been, I'm probably been seeing my edible product reviews on Instagram. Yes, they are so cute. I have that on here. Oh, thank you. (laughs) How cute are her edible reviews on her Instagram? (laughs) I just like, I like the products. And so like, I'm, I'm the tester for people. Like some of the products I've tried have been friends saying, I was looking at trying this. Can you try it first? And some of them have not been good, but I like to go through and see what's out there because when I first came into cannabis, I was super excited for whenever edibles was going to come on board. It wasn't legal when I started, but I knew it would come down the line. 
And I'm a huge foodie and I did a bit of product development in my first role. So I was super excited for this whole process. And I just love how we're branching out. I'm definitely a person that would like to see a lot more innovation. I'm not actually a sweet person. I love savory things. So I'm hoping to see like, you know, some cannabis chips or some cannabis jalapeno biscuits in the next year or two. Uh, and that's one thing I'm sure my class, if they're listening, anybody is probably like, oh my God, she beats on this like a dead horse. But I'm always like, if any of you start an edibles company, please make some savory edibles. Like I really appreciate like a cheese log or something, like just something that's not full of sugar. Cause I'm not a sweet person. Yeah. I need whatever product you come up with. I can be able to incorporate in like a charcuterie board. Okay. That's the standard. <laughs> Exactly. And I'm also just really pumped for the variety that's coming out. And for me, I think the edibles variety is also really indicative of people's sort of kind of stereotype or thought of what a stoner is per se. So I do appreciate the chocolates and gummies, but I'm looking forward to people starting to branch out a little bit more. I'm, I'm not a commercial manufacturer, so these will not be for sale, but I will be making a batch of edibles French macarons in the next few weeks. And I'm actually going to be making a YouTube video on how to do all of this correctly, how to do dilution calculations at your house how to figure out to do, you know, flavor pairing and stuff. So um, I'm looking at doing some purple cookie shells and I'm doing an Italian buttercream filling with kind of like a honey lavender thyme flavor to it. So we'll see how it turns out. But I really want people to understand that like, yes, a lot of us who consume cannabis, we're not all the same people. We all have different likes, dislikes. I'm definitely a bougie food person. So I will definitely eat a French edible macaron anytime, any day. Um, but I might not be really wanting to have gummies every single day. You know, the mood changes. So I really want to see some more innovation to attract people who have different palates and different preferences for food. Oh my gosh, your, we'll link your YouTube video until the end of time. That sounds <laughs> so amazing. Can you give everyone a rundown of what goes into making an edible? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this process itself is quite simple. It's really the finesse. It comes with like doing it a lot and the product development side of things, which is, you know, figuring out the recipe, but very straightforward is to grab your cannabis. You need to put it through a decarboxylation step. First thing, a big mistake I see a lot of people doing is not grasping that that step has to happen. And then they make, you know, brownies that they can't feel anything with decarboxylation is very simple. It's a scientific or chemistry term that is the removal of a carboxyl group. And what that means to you as a user of cannabis is that inside of a plant, fresh plant and the dried material, the majority of cannabinoids are present in their acidic form. And the way you would see these is a little A at the end. So it wouldn't be THC, it'd be THCA. It wouldn't be CBD, it'd be CBDA. Decarboxylation is the conversion of these acidic forms into their neutral forms, THC and CBD. That is what your body uptakes. That gives you the highest binding to your receptors. If you eat a bunch of THCA, you will not get the same level of psychoactive effects as if you consume THC. So the first thing you have to do is decarboxylate. It just involves simply heating your cannabis over a certain period of time at a certain temperature to achieve that step. The next thing is just to combine your cannabis with something that's a fat. Um, cannabis and cannabinoids, sorry, are fat soluble. You can't put your cannabis inside of tea. I think we've all had a friend in high school who tried to make cannabis tea and they did not get high from it. And that would be why it's because if you stick cannabis in water, pretty much nothing's going to happen. There needs to be some sort of fat there to pull the cannabinoids out into. So you can use butter, coconut oil, olive oil, whatever you'd like. There needs to be a fat content. You're going to put the cannabis inside of your fat for a certain period of time to allow this diffusion of the cannabinoids out of the cannabis into your fat. Other things diffuse as well, chlorophyll and other compounds. That's why your butter will have a particular color and scent anything that's fat soluble can move over. It's not like there's like a, a border basically or anything that can just prevent only the cannabinoids from coming across. Once you're done with that, you have your finished product. Basically, you can use it in however you'd like and whatever you would like. Personally, for me, I don't actually like doing the baking part of it with the infused product. Reason being that if you're looking at infusing butter or oil, baking can cause a lot of issues with the flavor of those over time. There's also the possibility of burning off your cannabinoids if you bake at too high temperatures. So um, this is actually something that I saw in a making edibles show, or a, I guess like a, I guess it was like a YouTube video. Um, but basically it was the same thing. The chef was talking about if you're going to use your edibles, you're going to use your at home made butters or oils. Don't put it into something that has to get baked, put it in the garnish, put it on the side, put it in a puree, put it in a hummus, put it in something cold where you can be sure that you're not burning off any cannabinoids or causing any volatiles to become more present. That is crazy. I never thought of the like additional heating step that could like affect it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you can obviously burn anything off and with, you're looking at, I have a lot of friends who will infuse into olive oil because they're looking at a healthier option. And then they'll try to use that in applications where they're doing like frying and the smoke point of olive oil and the smoke point of coconut oil is quite low. If you smoke the product, you're going to destroy everything inside of it. And cannabinoids also have a temperature at which they completely burn off as well. You can burn off the THC. So that's why when you vape, for example, you vape at lower temperatures than you would normally if you were like lighting it on fire. Um, so there's a reason why those temperatures are there. A lot of these guides are online. They will tell you the exact point at which, you know, THC will burn off completely and you have to stay within those temperatures. But instead of putting that added stress on myself, I just try not to put it in the part of the product that's going to get baked. So I don't have to worry about it. So for the macarons, I'm not putting it in the shells. I could, but I'm not going to. I'm going to put it inside the buttercream, which doesn't really get exposed to a lot of heat. Oh, that is so smart. What um, does the uh, product development process look like? Product development process for a commercial manufacturer is, is pretty simple, to be honest. It's kind of logical when you think and walk it through, but you would start off with generating your ideas. When I worked at Lactalis, we had these really fantastic idea generation days where all of the staff would get together and just think, think of ideas and go through stuff. Now, I've told this one to my class before, so I'm going to share this idea, but if any of you take it, I will know. At one of the idea generation days, we supply cream cheese to Tim Hortons. And I absolutely despise when I get a bagel and there is cream cheese in the hole. The bagel has a hole for a reason. Let the light shine through. So I told them, why don't we make cream cheese slices? Kind of like the idea of a processed cheese slice where it would just come as a perfect donut shape. The Tim Hortons worker or whoever it is would open up the little wax paper, drop the, the perfect portion of cream cheese down and move on to the next one. Now, I wasn't accepted for that idea generation day as a top idea to move forward with, but I still believe that that is a good idea. That um, is a great idea. Right? Who doesn't want their bagel to not have cream cheese in the middle? Seriously. I uh, didn't get moved forward with, but normally after idea generation, we'll do some kind of screen. So this is where you sort of have all your ideas, but you need to start to really vet them. Does it make sense financially? How much is this going to cost? If maybe you're an edibles manufacturer and you make gummies and a French macaron sounds like a great idea... Do you have the money to buy the equipment and to pay the product development scientists that you need, right? So we have to look at it from multiple aspects. Is it on brand? Is it in the like general thing that your consumer base would like? Is it going to alienate your consumers? There's a technical um, restrictions as well. So we're kind of looking through to see if this idea has legs because you want to vet really early whether or not this idea is going to make it through the final stage. You don't want to get halfway through product development and realize that you can't afford the marketing for it or the market's not ready for it or it's a product your consumer base won't like because it even invested a lot of time and money. After we've done like a basic vetting of the idea, you can start to go into a prototype development phase. That can involve, depending on the size of your company, running a pilot plant trial, which basically means a smaller version of commercial manufacturing. These are very specific types of equipment that use the same mechanisms as let's say a, a machine that processes 4,000 liters an hour, but we'll do it with hundred liters and we'll allow you to get the same mechanisms. When you look at the way that we cook in our house or the way the commercial manufacturer makes something, it's very different. They do not use the same type of equipment. They do not use the same process. A pilot plant's kind of the halfway point between the two. It allows you to do a bigger trial than you would in your kitchen, but it allows you to get a really good mimic of what the commercial scale would look like. Some manufacturers will do a pilot plant trial because they either have one internally or there is one that they can rent out. That is a thing. You can go and pilot plants and ask people and companies to run pilot plant trials for you. Um, or if you're a smaller scale edibles producer, you may just do it in the kitchen, which is just you trying to closely mimic as much as possible that process. Once you have some prototypes, you've done some sensory analysis, you've had people taste them, try them, check them over. You're really happy with the version that you picked. You'll normally make quite a few different prototypes to kind of get to your ideal. Then we start to look forward at getting your marketing in place, setting up your plans, all that good stuff. But from concept to completion, product development can take anywhere from six months to years, depending on what the concept is and how close it is to the products you already have at your company. Yeah, that sounds like a very long labor intensive process for some ideas. I'm sure the payout comes out good, but it sounds like a lot of risk involved as well. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that's why the vetting is so important. And that's why we have all these like stage gates where you kind of stop and do a review with the executive team or the upper level people. It's just that, you know, you don't want to get four years in and realize this isn't the project for you. And, and the worst thing, and this does totally happen, you're developing something and the competitor comes out with the exact same product before you're finished. And then your product's dead. Oh, that sounds like a knife to the stomach. <laughs> it is really soul crushing, but it happens all the time. Um, I mean, there's no idea that anyone has that hasn't been thought of before, right? That's that expression. So yeah. no matter if you think you're, I'm sure someone else out there has my, my donut shaped cream cheese slices just on the back burner somewhere. 
Uh, and I'm sure it'll come out. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It could very well come out one day and I might be in the middle of developing it myself when it does. And I don't think anyone has thought of that. That sounds like the most original idea I've ever heard of. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And maybe one day I'll get to it. Yeah. What's your favorite project you've ever worked on? Um, food project or cannabis project? Cannabis. Cannabis project. Okay. You're like um, I have both. <laughs> yeah. I'd honestly say that one of my favorite projects is one of the ones I'm working on right now because of the level of the scale of it, really. I'm working with a producer in Europe. They are a very large indoor producer already, but they are basically finishing up their first facility, which is going to be 45,000 plants across 26 grow rooms. Um, So I'm helping them with that right now. And we're doing the building. So I've been involved with the floor plans. I've been involved with all the planning, the purchasing and everything else. And then they're starting a second facility, which I'm just working on finishing up the floor plans for today. Uh, And that will be another 36,000 plants and they may buy a third facility. So um, there's a lot of work there. It's a very long-term engagement. I have a great relationship with the two founders that I work with all the time. And it's just really exciting because uh, it's a new market and it's just a lot. I get to do everything. I'm doing quality assurance and doing operations and doing designing and planning. So it's been a lot of fun and it's been helping me develop skill sets in certain areas as well. And I've grown really close with their team. We've been working together for nine months now. So I'd say quite a few of them are my friends as well. Oh, I love that. That was one of my questions was, do you feel like there um, is more of like an underrepresentation of women in the cannabis industry? Oh, 100%. I actually, for International Women's Day, put up a post about the fact that High Times and a few other magazines have done a couple studies on how many women are in cannabis and how many are in executive positions. And it's dropped, actually, unfortunately, in the last few years. In 2018, it was closer to 30%, and now we're closer to 20%. So there is very little representation of women in cannabis, especially in executive positions. And it's something that a lot of women in cannabis, we talk about all the time. It's really unfortunate because in comparison to other large industries where the marker is really closer to 30%, cannabis is a full 10% short. And the issue with that is that I genuinely just feel that the more perspectives you have at a table, the better you are at making decisions because you have everybody there. You have samples of your consumer at the decision-making table. So for me, as especially with what I do in particular, one of my girlfriends in cannabis and I were just talking about, I don't actually know any other female consultants that do what I do specifically on the more operational side. I know a lot of other female quality assurance consultants and a lot of sales and marketing consultants, but actually getting into the really male dominated portion of the grow is, is difficult. And I have faced a lot of pushback from growers when I've gone in that have told me, I don't look like somebody who's ever touched a plant. I don't look like I want to take my high heels off and walk the greenhouse. I get that a lot. So I actually have to put up with that quite a bit. But the thing about me is that I don't really take any of that from anybody. I'm not that kind of person. So I will 100% stand my ground, kick my heels off and then go and hang out in the greenhouse in the mud for like three hours. Like that's not something that bugs me, um, but it's, it's not friendly. And it's not something that I would really recommend for other women to do. If, it, if that is something that they would find very challenging. I've just always been in male dominated fields. Uh, when I was in my master's, it's a very male dominated thing to be in STEM, especially the kind of program I was in. I went into food. Food is very male dominated. Um, So for me, I'm kind of used to showing up and having to prove myself off the bat. And I've never had a problem with that. You know, you get a lot of flack at first and then I work for a month or two and they see that I'm good at what I do and I get the respect that I deserve. Do I think that's fair and that's right? No, but that's what happens. And so I've just learned to not be so sensitive about the comments and not really let it get me down. I know that I'm good at what I do and I'm, I'm happy with what I do. So I just try to make my mark where I can. And if I can even change one person's mind on every project that women shouldn't be in cannabis, that's all that I can do. That's crazy because what is someone that has experience with the plants or can get in a greenhouse even look like? Like what standard are you holding me to that you think that I don't fit? I think that to be honest, there is a, there is a cannabis grower stereotype look and it is definitely a gentleman with a beard, um, definitely wearing a cap, usually one of those like flat top caps. Um, and yeah, they just don't think that it's a woman. I, I had people come to me at Spanibus. I was in the cannabis conference in Spain and they asked me what I did and they would say, no, there's no way you do growing. And I'm like, yeah, I, I do grow. Have you ever touched a cannabis plant? Uh, yeah, I would be a really bad cultivation consultant. if I'm not. Like, I've, I've touched hundreds of thousands of plants. I've run harvests of like 4,000 kilos. Like I know what I'm doing, but they're just always really surprised. You know, they say, oh, you, you know, you're too cute to be a cannabis grower or like whatever. And I'm just like, I don't know what that really means. Like I do know what it means. But it's really sad that you think that there's only this one kind of person that can can grow. And, and the same thing as a cannabis user, 
I'm a, I'm a cannabis user. I've been a cannabis user for a long time. And I get every single time a client asks me, you know, after a few weeks together, Oh, do you use cannabis? And I'll say, yeah. And they're always completely floored. And I think it's because I'm a woman. I'm super type a, I'm super organized. I'm like always on the ball, but I don't know where this whole, like every single person who uses cannabis is your classic stoner archetype came from, but that's, that's really important to me too, is to let people know that People who use cannabis are from all walks of life, ages, backgrounds, ethnicities, sexual orientations, genders, like everybody. So we need to really get away from this whole concept that we all do one thing. And I really hate the negative stereotypes that we're lazy. I've had people say that to me. Well, you don't seem like someone who uses cannabis because you're not lazy. And I'm like, I don't really know what that means, Um, but I do. And I can send you a picture every time I, will that prove to you that I use it? Like I've had people call me a liar to my face about that fact in particular. And it's very frustrating. What? I'm, I was going to say, you probably, I thought immediately, I was like, of course, she's used to male dominated spaces. She's a STEM, a woman in STEM, like STEM is totally, totally male dominated. But the, the brazen, or maybe not brazen is not the word, but just like the outright disrespect of like, well, you don't fit the archetype. So therefore, you're lesser or you have more to prove to me it's like why do I have to prove anything to you in the first place I actually have to go into companies where their executive team has hired me and prove to the staff on the floor like multiple people will challenge me and I'll have to sit down and explain my entire educational background to them even though I'm already paid like I'm already hired as a consultant the executive team is on board and then I'm like with the growers downstairs and they're like fighting with me And I have to sit there and like win them over, over a span of like weeks or months. And it really makes no sense because I'm already here. I'm already contracted. It doesn't really matter what you think, but I'm also a big fan of like, I try to be as harmonious as possible. I don't like to have conflicts with people at my client's facility, even though my client won't care. And they don't care if that particular person has like a chip on their shoulder about me. I like to get to the point where they feel comfortable with me and I'm really integrate myself into the team. I'll be down there with the team cleaning rooms, cloning, doing stuff with them, because that's the easiest way for me to understand the process is to be alongside them. So I really always form a good relationship with people on the floor. And I mean, I don't think it's fair that they judge me off the bat, but I mean, judging people is something that a lot of people do. So I understand. Um, And I just do my best to be, you know, easy going about it. I don't take a lot of offense. I'm not very sassy in my responses. I'm very flat. Oh, have you ever touched a plant? Yes, actually, I used to manage a 1 million square foot greenhouse. We ran about 36,000 plants per per round and the harvest for about this many thousands of kilos. And as I keep pressing, I just keep providing facts. I'm just going to keep providing facts, more history, more information until you feel comfortable to pass over that trust to me. Right. Most of situations like that, I feel like stem from insecurity or intimidation. Oh, 100%. And uh, in particular with things on the cultivation side, the reason why there's a lot of that I think pushback is because a lot of these people who come in as growers, especially from the legacy market, they may not have formal education. So when I come in saying that I have a master's in plant science, I think there's a little bit of this sort of threat that I I know the growing from a different perspective than they do. I know it from their perspective as well, but I also know it from another perspective. So I may have a different look at certain things. And there are quite a few legacy market practices that I don't recommend that I actually force the client, well, not force, but I advise the clients to to stop using. And that can feel very threatening. But the way that I look at it is that I very much have an appreciation for legacy market growers. I very much appreciate that you have years of experience with this. But the fact of the matter is, no matter how long you've been doing something, when new research and new information comes out, you need to adjust. I've been doing things for a really long time and realized I was doing them wrong or there was a better way to do them. There's always going to be more information. And so that's why I'm really pro, like, it's okay. It's okay if things come out that are new, just because the cloning technique you're using is not the best for the plants does not mean that, you know, you, you're, you're, you're not smart or you're not good at your job. I'm coming to you with information from multiple facilities where we've done trials where we've said, this is the best approach. Let's try it together. If you don't see an improvement, no problem. We'll go back to your technique. They almost always see the improvement that I told them they would. Um, but I mean, it's, I'm, I'm okay. If you have to take a step back and you need to really see this for yourself, that's fine. But anybody who thinks that they are an expert on something and there is no chance at all, any new information is going to come out is doing a disservice to themselves and their company. Yeah, entirely. It's a, I was, that's the exact word I've thought of this entire time. It's like the, maybe not inability, but the hesitation to learn from a different point of view is such a disservice to the overall company and the other people who are outside of that. Like, let's say you're having a a 
interaction with like the two head growers. Well, all those employees, it's kind of one of those things where you're kind of doing a disservice to them too, by not just cooperating right off of the bat. Like you're almost wasting time essentially. Yeah. And one thing we've talked about with cannabis, and I don't like to really use this term, but this is the term for it is the bro bro culture, but this kind of thing where you have to like, I don't know, like you have to always be like proving yourself, even in like small conversations, like there are Reddit forums where, you know, somebody will post a picture of their plant being like, Hey guys, like I need some help. What's going wrong. And instead of helping them, the comments are, this is awful. Everything is wrong. Why did you even try? Like, I don't like that at all. Like I absolutely despise that because I don't think people who do that realize that that's hurting the whole industry. If people are frightened to ask for advice and they're frightened to ask questions because they're going to be shamed by you because they haven't been growing for 20 years or because they haven't been smoking cannabis for 20 years, that is really not what we're, we're trying to get at. So um, I'm really like, if anybody has any questions and they're super new, I would never, ever discourage them. I want more people to grow cannabis. I want people to use cannabis. I want it so that when I bring it up as my job, I don't get strange looks in different places. I want this to be a fully accepted industry. So part of that needs to be that those of us with experience and those of us who've been here for a long time, it's not a pissing contest. Welcome the new people in. Let them feel like you want them to be part of this community. Let's make this something that everyone in the world is less intimidated about. I have had people tell me that they're frightened to try like rolling a joint because they're scared people will make fun of them because their friends are like, oh, well, you don't know how to do, why is that the attitude? And when I try things for the first time in pretty much any other area of my life, people don't make fun of me. Why is this the one area where we have to make people feel like if they haven't been doing it for 10 years, they shouldn't even start. Like, how dare you try to start this now? Right. And people catch on to those attitudes pretty quick. And like you said, it's just a disservice to the entire industry. And then the person that you have put that negative stigma or mindset into is now thinking that maybe this won't be what's good for me, but it could be a huge beneficial part of their life. Yeah. I don't think that you need, like, I don't like this, but people pull out their cannabis resumes. I call it all the time. And it's completely unnecessary. I don't need to know how long you've been smoking cannabis for. I don't need to know anything about any of that. If I ask you a question or having a conversation. So, um, I get challenged on that a lot too. If I say that I smoke cannabis, how long, how many times it doesn't matter. What if I just smoked it once? Is that not enough? Like I'm not coming to you as an expert on smoking cannabis. We're having a conversation about, you know, whether or not the price point should be this much for an edible. What does that have to do with anything? So I really want to get away from this, that whole thing. And that's really important to me. It's just to get more people into cannabis and be welcoming. You know, I, I'm happy. I will start a cannabis welcoming committee if need be. And everybody who's new to cannabis can come to me and I will send them a little welcome note. That's like, Hey guys, welcome. Like asking you questions. I actually started a small, like uh, Reddit, uh, subreddit, uh, just called cannabis educate, because I just wanted there to be a place where it's very friendly, ask whatever questions you want. I try to post like almost daily cannabis facts about cannabis science or regulations or updates in the industry, but it's just a very friendly place. Like just come in and ask whatever questions you want and we'll help you. And there's going to be no judgment and we'll just, whatever you want to know, we will do our best to answer it. Oh my gosh. I love that because I know the, uh, Reddit thread that I found you on is very much like you mentioned before, where if someone posts a picture or they have like an issue, I noticed right away, I was like, oh, these people are not. That was actually the one I was referring to in my head. But yeah, I mean, I actually, so I, I don't really know Reddit. I honestly, the only time I'm on Reddit, I have lupus and I was recently diagnosed and I go onto the lupus forum. That is the reason I made a Reddit account because I don't have any personal friends that have it. And sometimes I just need to talk to somebody else about a weird symptom or a medication or like, what should I do? So I strictly made it a few months ago, like four or five months ago to talk on the lupus forum. And then I, my, I posted that picture of myself where I'm holding like two big or three big bags of cannabis from a client's facility. Just like, Hey, I love my job. And this is so much fun. And I, I, every day I'm still surprised that I get to do something that I really love. And it's also a rare job. Like there's not a lot of full-time cannabis consultants that travel around the world and do what I do. So my partner was like, oh, why don't you post that on Reddit? There's a big cannabis community there. And I didn't think very much of it. And I just tossed it into that one. And I had somebody else later on, a friend of mine say, wow, you're really brave. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, that form in particular is full of a lot of people that are going to give you heat for that. And I did, for the most part, to be honest, 90%, very positive comments, great stuff. But yeah, there was a 10% there that were telling me that, you know, because I'm a woman, I can't do this. And I don't look like somebody who uses can't like all the negative stuff that I was expecting, but that form in particular, yeah, it's become one of those things where it's very much like, show me your cannabis resume or get out. Yeah. Cause I went there cause I wanted to just learn more. I was like, what an interesting topic. I want to learn more. And that's the picture I saw is those huge bags. And I was like, 
oh, I want to talk to that girl. (laughs) Yeah, I don't actually deal with a lot of retail cannabis. So um, most of the product sizes are a kilo and up for the bags that I'll typically have at my clients. Oh my gosh, that's so much. It's almost like as big as your torso. It like almost crazy. I'll have to include that on my Instagram so people can see it as well. Yeah, um, I, I love what I do. And I just wanted to share with people what I do. And I I'm, I'm answered every question on that thread, every single one, they were like 300 pounds, I answered every single one, I told people whatever they wanted to know. I just think like education for me is very important in general, but cannabis education is a very big passion for me. What would you tell a woman that's trying to get into the industry? Like any advice or like, um, like little tidbits? I would say that there are a lot of very supportive women in the cannabis industry. You just have to find them. You're welcome to add me and chat with me if you'd like. Um, And that the other women that I have found in cannabis that I've made friendship with, they're strong friendships. You know, we get together and we talk about the crap we have to face. We talk about the comments that week that we had to deal with and having someone to vent to and talk to makes it a million times better. It's not great what's happening. And I'm not going to say that all of you will face this. I'm sure there's many women in the cannabis industry who don't have any comments directed at them whatsoever. It just happens to be that I'm in a, the really male dominated part of it. Um, sales and marketing, for example, or like, you know, retail is typically more female dominated in certain places. So there's, a, I think, less, hopefully, I'm hoping, like less of that animosity there. Um, but you know, don't feel like just because you're the only person at your company that's a woman or the only person on the executive team that's a woman that you don't belong there. You do. Your input and your insight is very, very key to that company and their success. So make room for yourself at the table. Elbow aside if you have to and get your place and say what you have to say. Wow. That's very inspiring and motivating. (laughs) You're like, yes, now I'm going to get into cannabis. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) What would you say to someone who's like, I've never smoked, ate, drank, I've never intaken cannabis before? What would you say would be a good place for them to start? Honestly, I was not a big fan of edibles for a while because there's always that crazy story where you've heard of somebody who's had like an extremely bad experience. Um, And it's really funny. You're talking about this. That was like one of the reels I put up today, but just like There are a few things that I would really recommend. Um, You know, I like edibles. I think now that I'm more used to them and I've been getting through a legal market, that is a starting point I'd actually really recommend because a low dose legal edible that's dosed correctly and is safe to consume is a lot more of a, I think, easier way to, to dip a toe in than to smoke. Smoking, especially if you don't know how to roll joints, if you don't own a bong, you don't own a pipe, it's a, it's a bit of an investment, right? You have to get the accoutrements to use it. Um, whereas, and concentrates are the same thing, you know, dab rigs and all that stuff, they're expensive. Like I wouldn't say, hey, like go try some rosin and spend like 200 bucks on a good dab rig. Um, edibles are nice. You buy them, they're consume as is, you don't have to do anything with them. You can control the dosage yourself. If you buy an edible and you're a bit apprehensive, just eat half. Um, I like a lot of two milligram edibles. They are very light. They are not intense at all. So Canada, quite a few of the beverages are about two, two and a half milligrams. I will go up to five or 10. It depends on what I'm doing. But if you want to get going, a nice two, two and a half milligram THC edible is a great way to start. If you don't want to have as much of an impairment, you can actually find one that has more CBD than THC. You get a little bit of that kind of impairment, but not a super heavy feeling. CBD sort of actually acts as an antagonist for some of the negative effects to THC. So it can be um, reduce anxiety, reduce some of the like neuropsychotic effects. So if you're a little bit apprehensive about it, try something that's got a greater ratio of CBD to THC. One of the drinks I tried a few days ago was 10 milligrams THC to two and a half milligrams, sorry, 10 milligrams CBD to two and a half milligrams THC. That's very relaxed. Um, and I like edibles because I think that, you know, they can taste really good. Some of them taste quite sweet and they're really enjoyable. So it's not as kind of, you know, smoking cannabis can have a very distinct taste and smell that people don't really like. Edibles don't have to stink up your house. They don't have to stink up your clothes. No one has to know you took one and you can enjoy them. Oh, I love, that's such good advice. Where can everyone find you if they want to start looking at your fun facts and your edible reviews? Where do you think is the best place for everyone to find you and follow your journey? So I just started posting on Instagram at the end of January because I kind of noticed there wasn't really any other women that were doing this sort of cannabis education thing. Like I've, and I've, I've actually met a couple now that I'm doing it, but um, my Instagram is my first name dot last name. So it's a T I Y Y a H dot for Rose F as in Frank E R O U Z. 
Um, and that's kind of where I'm on a lot. I try to post every single day. I try to provide edibles review or cannabis information or just some kind of insight into the industry. Um, and then the, the Reddit subreddit that I started is r slash cannabis educate. And that's just a place if you want to come and see kind of daily cannabis facts or ask questions about anything growing. Hey, I'm doing an edible for the first time. I bought this one. Like how much of it should I take? Any of that stuff. Feel free to post the questions there. Uh, it's myself and my friend Ricky that moderate it. She's also a tissue culture scientist. She also works in cannabis. Um, so she's the other moderator. One of us will get back to you. Um, but we are hoping to build this up. I want this community to be a large amount of people, people who are both canna curious, people who are experienced in the industry that can come together and help each other out. Oh, thank you so much for talking to me today. I feel like I've learned so much and I'm so excited for everyone to hear the like wealth of knowledge that you just dumped. I'm so <laughs> appreciative of you and your time and what you're doing. It's you're amazing. You're an amazing person. And thank I am you. just so appreciative for this. Well, thank you so much for reaching out. This is my second time doing a podcast. So I was very excited about it. I hope I did okay. And for everybody listening, I already know I talk fast. So you don't have to comment that. I'm well aware. Um, <laughs> I'm doing my best. My brain just goes really fast. My thoughts are fast. Um, but thank you so much for having me. This was really fantastic. And I'm glad after like all of our online back and forth, we kind of had a chance to chat because it's really nice to, I'm sorry, my camera's not on, but see you um, and then talk a little bit and have this discussion. And I really hope that we can do something again in the future. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. And another big thank you to Atia for spending the time to bust away from her super busy schedule and educate us on everything that is the cannabis industry. Join us here next week on Monday for another episode. See you then.